Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the interview series, New Books in African American Studies, where scholars and writers of African American life, literature, arts, culture, and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and today I had the opportunity to speak with Frank E. Dobson about his phenomenal new collection of short stories, Rendered Invisible, Stories of Blacks and Whites, Love and Death published by Plainview Press in 2010. Dobson's book is a wonderful collection of short stories that begins with a gripping novella that gives the book its title, Rendered Invisible. In this interview, Dobson discusses his book, Black Life, the role of literature in society, and why he loves his job as an educator and writer. Please, listen in. Hi, Frank. Hi, Vershawn. How are you? Very well. Thanks for asking. Today, today we're speaking with Frank Dobson about his new collection of stories, Rendered Invisible, Stories of Blacks and Whites, Love and Death, published by Plainview Press in 2010. This book opens with a gripping novella from which the title is taken. It's a complex story that is extraordinarily told because it's three stories rolled into one one based on historical facts about the serial killing of black men in New York in the 1980s and about the lives of two black men affected by those murders and the aftermath. That narrative is followed by five shorter stories ranging thematically from unrequited love to the exploitation of black basketball players. We're happy to have you on the show today, Frank, to help us get better acquainted with your book. But first, we'd like to get to know you a little bit better. Can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? I sure can. I, I um, had a chance to uh, actually hear some of the, your, your interviews, and it's so interesting that Harvey Young, like myself, as a native Buffalonian, and so born and raised in Buffalo, New York, and a similarly working-class background. My dad worked for over 40 years at Republic Steel, uh, and my mom held various and sundry occupations as well as raised three children, of uh, which I uh, am the youngest. And so my background in Buffalo, New York, a working-class environment, but it, a home where my parents stressed education. I always talk about the fact that even though my mom did not finish high school, she was a voracious reader. And in fact, one of my sisters, Daphne, is named for the French novelist Daphne du Maurier. Oh, wow. Uh, because my mom was reading those novels in translation. And so it's one of those things that, again, I think when we talk about African-American families and backgrounds and all of that, we can't box people in because we don't always know the true story. Right. And so, and so again, my story, African-American, born and raised in Buffalo, New York, from Buffalo, which is where I got not only um, my uh, public school education, but also um, attended the University of Buffalo on the undergraduate level, graduating with a degree in English and um, a minor in black studies, as it was called back then. Um, left there, went to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where I was a teaching assistant and also got a master's degree in English. From there, I went to Bowling Green State University, where I got my PhD in English and my dissertation was on the use of oral tradition and ritual in African-American fiction writers. Uh, the chief writer whom I studied was James Baldwin. Now, the interesting thing is Baldwin was a writer in residence at Bowling Green. And so I got to take a class with Jimmy Baldwin, got to know him very, very well. <laughs> so that's one of those, those incredible things that when I tell people, they go, you knew Baldwin? You took a class with Baldwin at Bowling Green? Yeah. Wow. That's, yes, how how yes. was that? That that was amazing. There were actually two classes that Baldwin taught, and it was so interesting. He came uh, to Bowling Green. This was in the 70s, uh, mid to late 70s, so let's say 76, 77. The dates may be a little off, but, but not that much. And he actually um, taught two classes, but he first came for a talk, and he was on the podium along with Harry Edwards and a couple of other people. And following the talk, they asked him, would you come back and be a writer in residence? And he said, yes. And people asked him, well, why did you say yes? He said, nobody ever had asked me before. And so he came back and taught two classes, one of which was an undergraduate uh, seminar. And I was one of the graduate students working there on my PhD, and I was a teaching assistant for that class. 
Wow. So we got to, to spend some time with him, and he would simply come into this large amphitheater, maybe 200 students signed up for the class, and hold court. At the time, though, he was working on his last novel, Just Above My Head, so he was reading to us from the novel, the manuscript, as he was working on it. Mm. It was amazing. And then he also taught a, a graduate-level class, myself and maybe, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 people took that class, where he talked in more, more length, not only about that book, but about the process and just about anything he wanted to. He really just held court. But it was a fascinating kind of thing. And at the end of the class, I, I wrote a paper on Sonny's Blues and several of his other works. And that um, piece, which he read and liked, um, became base, the basis for my dissertation. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So you're an academic and a novelist. And an administrator. <laughs> I, I direct the Black Cultural Center at Vanderbilt University. I teach uh, creative writing across the way at Fisk University, and I also serve as faculty head of house here, which means a lot of my work has to do with uh, first-year students, where I live with them, I teach them a special class, and uh, so my wife and I live with 240 freshmen. Wow. Yeah, I hope we can uh, talk some more about that, but let's get into uh, talking about Rendered Invisible and how you came to write this this collection of stories. Well, it's, it's one of those things where, and I was just back home in Buffalo recently, I gave a talk for the NAACP and was actually a featured panelist on a discussion of race and violence. And it's so interesting, when I would go back and forth, uh, I was living at the time in Ohio when I really started thinking about working on this book. I was living at the time in Ohio, and both of my parents uh, were ill. My dad, uh, cancer, my mom, Alzheimer's. And so I was going back and forth about 400 miles every other week just to help care for them. And I, one of those times, going back home to the old neighborhood, something said to me, and I don't know what it was, that story had not yet been told. Now, part of it was that I had been teaching uh, books like John Edgar Wideman's Philadelphia Fire, which is about the move bombing uh, of, of the move compound in, in inner city Philadelphia, where Wilson Good, the African-American mayor at the time, authorized this bo bombing mm -hmm. from helicopters of this African-American neighborhood because they were you know, at a standstill with this particular group of, of, of black people known as move. Mm -hmm. Well, well, that novel, and then also Tony K. Bambara's novel on the Atlanta child murders, Those Bones Are Not My Child, which is an incredibly meticulously uh, researched novel, something like almost 700 pages where she looks at the Atlanta child murder. So those two novels really gave me permission and said to me, okay, Frank, you're from Buffalo, born and raised here. Nobody's told this story. And as, as a result, I felt like the men, the neighborhood, the city had been rendered invisible, hence the title, mm -hmm. because nobody really seemed to give a damn about, about the men in this story. And it was so interesting because people would talk about the Atlanta child murders, hmm. and people would talk about that particular year, 1980, because in May of 1980, there was an assassination attempt on the life of then-Urban League President Vernon Jordan. Mm -hmm. And then you had the situation in Buffalo, and you had the situation in Atlanta. And as a matter of fact, the, the, the police authorities from Buffalo talked with those in Atlanta as they were hunting for you know, the would-be killer of these African-American men. Thirteen men in all were, were killed during this killing spree of the 22 caliber killer. But it would be so interesting because I would talk with people, well-educated, PhDs, historians, and they wouldn't know. And they would look at me and go, you're kidding. No, I'm not. And, and, and for me, um, as a young man, 1980, I was living away from home, and I was going to go back home. And my parents said to me during the fall of 1980, don't come back home right now. They're killing brothers. Wow. Because nobody knew why. All we knew was that African-American men were being slain shot in the head, in a couple of cases stabbed by this assassin, this serial killer. But no one, the history books, um, the anthologies that look at serial killers simply did not mention 
this particular killer, this particular series of slangs. Why do you think that is? Well, it's so interesting. I was back at the University of Buffalo, my alma mater, in February, and did and did a talk uh, for a scholar, a friend up there, and um, and his class. And about 40, 50, maybe 60 students and I, and I'm at the front of the room, and this young woman says to me, as I'm talking and giving the history, she says to me, okay, Dr. Dobson, is the reason that we did not know about this and the public did not know about this, is it due to the fact that the victims were black men or is it due to the fact that this happened in Buffalo, New York, which is, of course, not as romantic, not as exciting as New York City or Atlanta or some other places. And I looked at her, and I said to her, probably a combination of both. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, unfortunately, I cannot deny the fact that the ethnicity and the gender of the victims played a role. I think that's undeniable. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the characters in the book, um, Eddie and Kwame and uh, some of the others. Again, as a writer, you know that whole concept concept of intertextuality, where texts are talking to one another. And for me, looking at what Bambara and 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 Weidman had done, and other writers had done, I knew that I didn't simply want to tell the historical narrative that I also wanted to place myself in the narrative. So the Eddie character is really me coming back home. Mm -hmm. My middle name is Edward. Um, and, and coming back home to a barber shop that I used to frequent growing up, right around the corner from where I lived. And the fact that the barber shop is the locus of these conversations by black men who are looking back on the killings uh, and so, and so you've got the Eddie character, and you've got these other characters who are saying to one another, "Look at what happened," and look at the fact that nobody really seemed to care about the fact that this happened, that it's not written in the history books, and you, and you have the, the character who's coming back and trying to really document this story and he's listening to Johnny who's this African American male who kind of tells the story of his family disintegrating his wife leaves him and takes their young daughter and he's talking about the 22 caliber killer and the fact that he as so many black people at that time during those months when the killing spree was going on they armed themselves because they were afraid to step outside the door mm -hmm. and so those men in that barbershop, which for African-American males is a sacred space. It's a space where we can be one another and talk to one another and laugh and joke and get serious. And so it becomes a time when Johnny can talk to Eddie and talk to Kwame about the fears and the anxieties that, that were rampant at the time of the 22 caliber killings. Mm -hmm. Go on. Oh, oh yeah, and 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 really for me, it, it's so so it's 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 a novella about family and community, not only in terms of of Eddie and Kwame and 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 Johnny, but when I tell the story, I, I I bring in Bill Riley, who's this white character who's a college professor at a local community college. Johnny's wife has taken classes from him. He sees Johnny on a street corner trying to catch the bus, and Bill Riley, he's white, he's liberal, he cares, thinks to himself, I need to pick up this black guy because there's a white, crazy white killer out here killing black men. If I give him a ride, perhaps I am in some way helping to combat the san insanity. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is once he gives this guy a ride, once this guy gets in the car with him, who knows what's going to happen because Johnny's fearful. Johnny's carrying a gun in his lunch pail as he gets ready to go to work at one of the steel mills on the other side of the city. And his wife has left him. Bill Riley doesn't know all of this. And as you know, all hell does break loose because you have a black man and a white man in a city where, which has gone crazy, which has gone mad over issues of race and violence. You know, one of the um, really provocative and gripping elements uh, about 
about this book is the way in which you depict the emotional and psychological circumstances uh, that these characters uh, confront, the way in which race um, motivates and informs people's perceptions and actions. You, you said a moment ago that um, uh, that when Johnny's uh, picked up that uh, uh, that Riley gets involved or intertwined into this uh, into the into the um, narrative, um, but they're both motivated by fear in some ways, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, absolutely, and, and it's fear of the other, fear of the unknown. It's animosity. Johnny as a black man, working class, in America, in the 70s and the 80s, and perhaps even today, has a chip on his shoulder. Part of that chip is a chip that's been put there by our society. Class, race, privilege, the haves and the have-nots. And he's riding in the car of someone whom he perceives as a have, yet he sees himself as a have-not. And he sees himself as someone who's stuck there. And so for him, all of a sudden, Bill Riley, who wants to befriend him, is still seen as an enemy. He's helping me, yet I can't quite accept this help, and I can't quite accept him. And, and so there are, there are these issues of fear that, that, that have to do with the violence that's going on, but that that are that that actually extend beyond the violence mm -hmm. that the violence is simply a manifestation of the fear mm -hmm. that's already there and we see the way in, in which this fear is further played out when um when uh, Johnny is is in Riley's home and his and his wife's fear over <laughs> overtakes her i think in in some ways um and i don't want to give too much away about the book but uh that 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 you see some racist um overtones in her actions absolutely absolutely um um again i am I'm, I'm gonna look at, at at some of the work that you know based upon the harvey young interview that you did and i i just bought the book recently and the fear of the black body this intruder in her home this black body and she's got to get him out right of the home it doesn't matter that her husband is saying to him to her, excuse me, he's befriended me, he's helped me, he's rescued me. Indeed, the black body, the black intruder, <laughs> must be done away with. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so the fear of the black body and the way in which black bodies are, are depicted, not only in, 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 in the novella, but indeed in, 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 in some of the other pieces, I'm thinking of the short story, um, about the basketball player, uh, Black Messiahs Die, where again we have sort of the fear and the fascination of, with the black body on right. the part of white America. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about this novella um, because it really is, a, at least from my point of view, um, an extraordinarily written uh, story. Um, can you tell us about the structure and, and the timeline and, and why you chose to uh, deploy some of the techniques in this story that you use. Thank you. Yes. Um, I wanted to tell, and it's so interesting, I went back to Buffalo, New York, um, as I said, two weeks ago. The NAACP invited me back for the Freedom Fund Bank when I was a keynote speaker, and I did a, a, a talk at one of the libraries there, and a young man came up to me, eh, maybe not young, maybe 50, and he was the son of one of the men who was slain. I met a councilman who was a cab who was who was the nephew of one of the men who was slain. And so I wanted to make sure that first of all that I had people these characters Johnny and Bill and and some of the others telling their story to s sort of depict the fear the paranoia of my homeboys and homegirls during that time, even though I didn't live in the city at that time, my parents were there, my dad was fearful, my mom was there, one of my sisters were, was there, and so I, want, I wanted to do that. But in addition to that, I wanted to preserve the integrity 
of, of the chronological narrative. So I needed a timeline, and I want the reader to follow me with that first killing of Glenn Dunn, who's a 14-year-old black boy who's sitting in a car, and the killer comes up to him. And we later know that the killer is Joseph Christopher, who comes up to him and shoots him in the head with a 22 caliber pistol for no reason. And, and I want you to go with me on that timeline as I not only give you the chronology of the killings, but the chronology of the responses to the killings on the part of the black community and on the part of the white community. So that's real important. And then the third piece of that story, which is why I guess it is multi-layered, is that not only do I want to give you the, 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 the story from the perspective of the Johnny and, 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 and them and, and also um, – but I also want to give you the perspective of Eddie, who's trying to take this story and tell it. And obviously, he's the me character. He's the autobiographical character who says to them, this story needs to be known, needs to be told beyond the walls of this barbershop and beyond the, the, the borders of this city. Mm-hmm. And when, when, when Eddie says that, um, I think that's the most direct announcement of the author's motivations, I think, that's placed in the book. And the reason why I say that is because even though this is based on um, historical uh, incidents of the past, and I would also say has some um, political intent, it's what Toni Morrison says when she says that art must be politically engaged but irrevocably beautiful um, at the same time. And I think you, you, you do that, especially by allowing us to see some of the complexities of the characters' um, ideas and their fraught relationships, especially the relationship with Johnny and his wife and, and Eddie and, and, his, and his wife. Is he married to? Um... He, actually, Eddie is in, a, is in a relationship with someone back in Ohio where he's a professor and teaching and all of that. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit of estrangement there. Right. She's a black woman who's had a child by a white guy. Mm-hmm. And so the, the whole question of identity crops up there. But it also crops up not only in terms of her relationship and her son, who's trying to figure out who he is. And at some point he loves Eddie because Eddie's a black man. At some point he hates Eddie because he's not sure this kid, if he's black or white, and the relationship is tenuous between his mom and Eddie. And so there's all this stuff going on. But Eddie's own relationship with the community Mm -hmm. is tenuous because Eddie's this African-American who's left, who's become a success. He's gotten all these degrees and all of a sudden um, he's wondering who is he? The, the, The guys he grew up with, that he played basketball with, that he hung out with, they're still in the hood. Yet he's now a professor and a PhD and they're questioning, who are you? Whose are you? And he himself is questioning. And so this, this act of trying to come back and tell the story is for him also sort of an act of, as Baldwin says, trying to redo your first work, right. to come back and, and reclaim home, if you will. Wow. What's the, uh, what was most surprising to you about writing this book? What, what act of discovery did you have? I think the act of discovery that I had most of all was that it touched chords in me that I didn't expect mm-hmm. to be touched in terms of, again, the whole question about home. At, at, at one point, um, and I, I like to quote Baldwin, you know, his influence is great on me more than any other author. And he talks about the fact that, and this is someone who's asking him this, um, and, 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 and they ask him, you know, you, you, were, you were away from home during the height of the civil rights movement, and Baldwin says, no. You take your home with you. If not, you're homeless. And so the whole question of home and who I am comes even more to the fore when, when, when I'm working with this book because I'm uncovering myself as well. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the other stories in the book. Um, we could talk about anyone you want to talk about first. Well, let's talk about Black Messiahs. Okay. Black, Black Messiahs is a story about the basketball players. Yes. Go on. Well, it's a story about a basketball player, but, but the, the, gen- the genesis for the story, to be quite frank, I was living in Ohio at the time. Uh, this is probably late 90s or something like that, or maybe early 2000s, I forget. I was living in Ohio at the time and had a very, very, very good friend 
who's who's a writer, um, not an academician, but a writer, a novelist, had a couple of novels written, whose son just got drafted in the first round of the NBA. But I knew when this kid was 10, 11, 12, because my friend would say, he's being courted by this shoe company. This college coach has already said to him, and the kid was like 12 years old at the time, he could play in my starting five. And he's been ranked the number one 13-year-old in the country. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? And this was also not too far from the time when we had the LeBron James phenomenon on the high school level, and his high school team was touring the country. They came to Dayton and played where the University of Dayton played. I mean, they were, they were doing this junket. And it was also around the time in Cincinnati, there were a number of slayings of unarmed black men by the police. Hmm. And after slaying number 14 or 15, I thought, there's a story here with hmm. all of these various elements the final piece was I was actually at the time, as I said, working at Wright State, but also I was doing a moonlighting thing at a school in, a, in, in um, Cincinnati, drove down with two of our kids, was going to my car, was on a college campus, and the local cop stopped me and said, who are you? What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm teaching here. I'm a college professor. And my kids looked at me, and they were, they were getting ready to cry. Because all of a sudden you have racial profiling happening to their dad, who's simply working. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I said, what I wanted to do was to create a character, not a Timothy Thomas, who was one of the victims of police violence in Cincinnati, but someone who, in the eyes of society, would be worth more money. So a LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, latest basketball phenom who's shot and killed by the cops right before he's getting ready to get paid, as kids would say, because of the shoe contract that's going to happen, because of the draft status and the like. And then the question for me is, what happens now? What happens now in terms of those white men in suits who are going to make money off of him? What happens now? in terms of his family, what happens now in terms of how the rest of the world looks at this kid. Mm -hmm. What do you think literature or creative writing can provide or help or um, do in situations like this? In other words, the act of writing I'm asking this personally, the act, do you see the act of writing as, as one way of intervening into these circumstances? I do. And, and, in, and in this particular circumstance, Black Messiahs Die, I actually adapted it for the stage. And it's been a play now for a couple of years that has been presented in several venues in Ohio and Tennessee and New York City and also in North Carolina. And, 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 the conversation that I want to have, not unlike, not unlike the conversation that I want to have about the themes in the novella, have to do with human worth, human value, and how in our society, unfortunately, some people are seen as less than, less worthy, less valuable. What's interesting about this story is that the person with the m most insight about the exploitation and uh, who sees the devaluing of life in general and black life here in particular is a white female. Yes, yes, yes. She's a white female who is actually interning. She wants to be an attorney. She wants to be a sports agent. Her name is Eden. She's come up kind of hard. She's a single mom, but she's finishing law school and this is what she wants to do. But as she sees the exploitation, she has to question that. She has to question if she wants to continue in this line of work, given what's going to happen to the next great one, mm -hmm. the next chosen one, to quote LeBron James. How, why the choice? I'm, 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 I'm being selfish here as a reader and asking, <laughs> taking advantage of asking the writer certain questions that, sure, that sure, I wanted fine. to know uh, as I was reading this book. Why the choice? 
to have her as a white female? Well, it's so interesting because in original manuscripts, she was an African-American female. Mm -hmm. And I decided I wanted to make it a little more complex in terms of questions of racial boundaries and borders because she and the young man in question, Johnny, and he's known as J-Fly, uh, um, are, are, are friends. They're very much friends. And, you know, that friendship is, is like brother and sister. Mm-hmm. Yet there are those who look at it and look at the stereotype and go, there's a black male who's going to make it big and he wants him a white female. That's not the case, but I want to play around with that. I want to mm-hmm. play around with the stereotypes because I want us to really begin to interrogate those. But also I wanted her to be white because she's got to then try to negotiate these borders and these boundaries. She's a fan of African-American literature and at some point is talking with Johnny about his future and her own. And she's talking about her love of people like Toni Morrison and James Baldwin and, and some of the others. And Johnny's looking at her and going, wait a minute now. Jay Fly's looking at her and going, you're not supposed to like that. Mm-hmm. Well, how many times does our society say that to us? You're not supposed to like that. You're not supposed to be there. And so I want readers to begin to look at that. Right. And, you know, I, I told you earlier um, in our pre-interview discussion that I've added this book now to my syllabus in major black writers. And it's this story in particular uh, that motivated me to do that because of um, of Eden. Um, when I teach my classes at, you know, this predominantly white institution and I have predominantly white students and a black literature class, sometimes I've found that it's difficult for them to see the literature as speaking to them and speaking to their circumstances and their role in society and life as well. And by you making Eden, depicting her as a a white female who has insight into this circumstance and is bothered by it even more so than I would say the mother is of the... um, uh, more so than um, Jonathan's mother, I think that that's, that's very skillful. And I think that it will allow some of the students, white students in particular, an entree into um, seeing how these sort of things affect them as well. I, I hope so. I hope so. And, and, and this may be one of those things where I'll quote Baldwin again, but, but in The Fire Next Time, he says, and, and whenever I would teach African-American literature, I would put this quote on the board for my students. Black and particularly white, color is not a human or a personal reality. It is a political reality. And Eden is faced with negotiating both of those. Mm-hmm. You know, color is not a human or a personal reality. It is a political reality. And the personal reality and the human reality is she loves this kid. She mm-hmm. loves this kid. She cares about him. But the political reality is she's a white girl who's trying to figure out what to do next in response to a crime that she sees as racist. Mm -hmm. But it's really crimes that she sees as racist because not only is the crime of the unlawful shooting of an unarmed black man, because in this case, Johnny and his brother are going out to get burgers and he's driving this big freaking SUV that he's gotten from the agency that's going to represent him and because the agency is going to get paid. They get stopped by a cop. And I don't want to give all the plot away. They get stopped by a cop and we know what might happen. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And she sees that crime, but the other crime that she sees is the manipulation, the commodification of this black boy, this black body. Mm-hmm. So she's got to respond to both of these. And I think what would be a pro- an appropriate term to call the mother's response? Um, it's an exemplification of, of hegemony, um, of 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 not seeing. The problem? Yes, yes, yes. And, 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 and the irony of it is that the mother has another son. Right, right. This is what I'm referring to. The mother has another son that they're recruiting to be a basketball player. And I think my reading of the ending is that Eden sort of sees a perpetuation, a cycle, and that, and that the mother is participating in it. Yes, Yes, absolutely. But the question for us is, what else is the mother to do? 
She's poor. She's black. She's got kids to raise. She's lost her husband in the Gulf War conflict, so she's a single mom. Not, not in terms of the stereotype, but she's a single mom because of the Gulf War conflict, which was an intentional uh, uh, brushstroke as well. So what is she to do? Mm-hmm. Because if, if she doesn't allow son number two to do this, is she just turning her back on the would-be riches? Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the conundrum is, of course, one that has faced you know, any number of African-American people in this situation and and but but you're absolutely right at a certain level when i've taught this book or when i've talked about it with with, with this story in particular with, with with people the question always is why'd you let the mama do that right 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 because good writers do that that would be my response good writers uh they make the reader get involved by asking real questions about these, about the characters, and 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 you un, and you unsettle us in ways that um, good writing should do. That would be my well, response. <laughs> and 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 the, it's the moral dilemma. It's right. the moral dilemma. It's it's Huck saying again. All right, I'll go to hell. I love Nigger Jim, and I'm gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna turn him in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the moral dilemma. Let's uh, move on to another story. Sure. Sure. Uh, let's see, uh, my friend. Do you have one you'd like to suggest, or I can just throw another one at you? Uh, uh, Junior Ain't. Okay. Junior Ain't is, is, is a story about a little black boy who's eight years old, and I'm, I'm going to mention this collection, um, and in terms of, of collections that, that sort of told me, this is, these, these are the stories you want to put in here. One is the collection by Ernest Gaines, Bloodline, where he looks at, at people and narratives. The, narrative, the narr- narrators, excuse me, in that collection get progressively older and older. And so I wanted to have a variety of ages of narrators. And so the narrator of this one is a little boy by the name of Junior. Willie, actually. Uh, Willie Junior, who's eight years old. Um, but the other collection that I thought about when I was writing this one mm-hmm. was Eight Men by Richard Wright, mm-hmm. where he's got these African-American men as, you know, as, as the eye in each one of these stories. And even though that's not quite the case in this story, because um, the eye in, in Black Messiahs is actually this, this, this white female, um, but we still also focused in on, on Jonathan. I wanted to, to tell the story of a young black male, and by young I mean child, and the problem confronting him with identity because the father's not in the home, and mama's doing a great job, and he's got a sister, but he's looking at himself, really, as the other with respect to to his family. Mm -hmm. And so he's got to grow up in a way that maybe he wouldn't have to otherwise. And there are questions about self-worth. Um, there are questions about indigency. Uh, they're telling us we poor, telling us I'm not this, telling us I'm not that. And so there's anger on the part of this eight-year-old right. toward right. family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you don't allow him to be vindicated at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I, I must say, I was hoping. Uh, I, I, it's like we're having a private conversation. Let me let me open this up for the listeners. Um, he's being taunted by his relatives, and yes. he he wants to get some revenge. Um, and as you already said, you know he has a, a lot of anger, and I would say justifiably from my, my reading and um and so he he <laughs> he wants to get back at them and can, and devises this plan to do so um and and it and it doesn't it's not allowed to go through i was it hoping not- i was hoping that it would and you know i i too hope that it that it does every time i read the story or reread the story mm-hmm. Um, 
but I think for me, the, the story, which is so interesting because I've shared this story with children as, as well as with adults, and the children get it, and I think the children get it. And it's been, you know, black kids, white kids, and I'm, when I say kids, I mean grammar school kids, because they understand the anger that this boy has that, that, are, that is part and parcel of growing up in a home where you're told, again, you're less than. And sometimes it's not an audible you know, uh, label, but it has to do with the actions, indeed the actions of his cousin, who's this little girl who taunts him, says to him, you're inferior. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it manifests itself in terms of things. Which is which, you know. I think even for adults in America who want to make you feel inferior, much of the time it's a litany of things. She says to him, "These games you have are whack. You don't have this, and you don't have this. This is what you have. I don't want to play with your old, you know, mm-hmm. because they're not up to par. They're not what. They're not the latest. They're not the greatest. And and unfortunately for our children." That is much of the time the narrative that they receive, that because of the things that you don't have, you're less than those of us who have those things or come from household, households where we can readily get those things. And so the anger for him is not simply the anger that daddy's not in the home. It's the anger that unfortunately is all too American. They've got things that I don't have. Right. Right, and one of them is a, is a daddy, though. I mean, that's one exactly. of the, one of the things yes. that his cousin um, insults him about, saying that um, how can he be a junior when he doesn't have a dad? Exactly. She's yes. just she's just mean, Frank. She is just mean. <laughs> <laughs> she you, she is just mean. After I read this story, I had to close the book and go for a walk. I just I, I, had, to, <laughs> I had to deal with this. Can you read a little bit from the book? I sure will. I absolutely will. And I'll, I'll read from uh, Rendered Invisible because we've spent quite a bit of time on, on that. Um, and I'm going to pick it up in Chapter 5 of, of the piece. And I'm going to start with uh, the timeline. Timeline, Monday, September 28, 1980. All four men died from bullet wounds from the same gun. All four were shot on the left side of the head. The papers run editorials calling for the ap- calling the apprehension of the killer the highest priority and an urgent task for police. The Buffalo police rule out the possibility that Joseph Paul Franklin wanted for the questioning in the shooting of National Urban League President Vernon Jordan and other blacks in five cities is a suspect in Buffalo. Investigators from Buffalo, Niagara Falls, and Cheektowaga, all three communities where the slayings occurred, have hit a dead end in spite of hundreds of tips and clues. Moreover, the longer the killing spree continues, the more tense the situation will become, according to the Reverend Bennett Smith, local coordinator of Operation Push. Reverend Smith also expresses concern that the FBI isn't involved yet, stating, It would be a simple matter for a case to be made for civil rights being violated. Push begins raising reward money. Timeline, Tuesday, September 30th, 1980. The reward begins to grow from different sources throughout the city, from both the black and white communities as well as local businesses. A $1,000 reward is put up by the Buffalo News and WKBW-TV for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the killer. Wednesday, September, October 1st, 1980. The FBI enters the investigation because, according to U.S. Attorney Richard J. Akara, the civil rights of two of the victims may have been violated because the killer interfered with the right to public accommodations. Mm. One was shot in a restaurant and one in a supermarket parking lot. The locales of the shootings allow the authorities to use the old civil rights legislation from the sit-ins to bring the feds into the case. This legislation links the Buffalo violence to the 60s struggles when blacks in the South integrated lunch counters, soda fountains, and any other facility which serves the public and is principally engaged in selling food and beverages. 
for Buffalo blacks walking on the street eating a hamburger and fries have become gestures of courage, acts against fear and paranoia which linked the city with the struggles of the past. When young blacks sat down at lunch counters, knowing they would be beaten, spat upon, killed. Now we knew we might die just for being black. According to the police, a white man in a neighborhood where one of the shootings happened said to a black woman, you're next, or you're going to get it, and then fled. But no black women have been shot, just brothers. By this point in the investigation, the police have gotten over 200 calls and tips, including one from a man who identified himself as the killer. And there's another where, according to the media, a wife called the cops to say she thought her husband was the killer, but she refused to give his identity. Do you want me to continue? You can read as much as you want. That's that's beautiful. That and that's that's excellent. <laughs> Thank you. Thank very you. very nice quality. I can ask a a couple other questions. Um, okay, because great. I don't, I don't want us to run out of time without me getting a chance to really <laughs> ask you some of these things that that were going on in my mind as I read this book. Um, you're relentless in the way in which you. Um, force readers to confront uncomfortable situations. I mean, you do it beautifully. It's very, you know, high literary quality. I'm thinking about the last story, It Falls Between, written something like a play, two men, one black, one white, and the white man is sort of becomes a, a, a self-appointed um, police officer, a vigilante, and there's a, a black guy who is trying to do the right thing and is caught up in this um gets caught up in this man's uh I don't know the term to use for it, gets gets caught up in his desire to right a wrong. Yes, yes. Can you tell us about what motivated this story? Well, it's it's so interesting because I was in teaching creative writing I would writing I would ask my students and I would give them a prompt, which was to write a short story based upon a bumper sticker. And we see all kinds of bumper stickers today. And around that time, when I first came up with that assignment, I literally saw in the space of maybe two weeks, two bumper stickers, which said, as the bumper sticker in the story says, somebody I loved was murdered. And I thought about that. If someone has that on their bumper sticker, clearly they are they are walking around with so much anxiety and anger and and fear. And I thought, what if I use that? I myself use that bumper sticker as the catalyst for a story. And so we have in the case of this story, the bumper sticker on the truck of the white man who's touring the black community, going through the black community to try to find his daughter who was killed by a black man. Somebody I love was murdered on the bumper sticker, on the bumper of his car. But this black guy who's homeless, who's on a street corner with a squeegee, trying to, to get business, wiping car windows, who's also had someone his, in his family murdered. He's attracted to the possibility of business when he sees this car circling the corner in a neighborhood where you don't see cars like this circling the neighborhood unless they're cop cars. And when he realizes this guy is not a cop, he seeks friendship because of the bumper sticker. Mm-hmm. And we know that there's, a, there's probably going to be a clash because what the white guy is after is vengeance. What the, what, what the black guy wants is commerce and perhaps friendship, camaraderie. And so what's going to happen when you bring these two men together, both of whom have lost someone at the hands of the violence that that is rampant in our society, what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. That that's that's a that's a beautiful story, and and thank you for sharing. Um, You're welcome. You're what welcome. went into uh, uh, con- constructing it? And there are two other stories that we haven't talked about: another continent and um, and homeless MF. Yes. Well, you know, it's it's so interesting because homeless MF is is again a story about about violence, um, and and 
and and hence the title of stories of blacks and whites love and death because i want i want to center in on on the violence that that's that's plaguing our communities um that that particularly is plaguing black youth today um whether it's going to school or going to work or in the case of 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 the story homeless mf excuse me you have a young man who's washing his car and there's a drive-by shooting that happens, and his sister is an innocent victim. They weren't even gunning for her. They were gunning for someone else. And he ensues, and something happens. He comes out, out, out of jail with a record. And now, all of a sudden, he's got to try to make a way for himself, and he does it by trying to con people. And, and and the irony of it is, and, and I'm thinking I'm thinking of a book like Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow: Mass Incarceration in, in an Age of in the Age of Colorblindness, where she's looking at the drug sentencing laws and how they're inordinately affecting African American males, and she talks about the fact that because of the junk drug sentencing laws, we've created our society has created. You know, a, a new Jim Crow status for African American males because once many of these guys get out. You can't vote. There's no place you can live. Nobody wants to give you a job, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this young man in this story, same thing. Now, he's not in jail. He wasn't in jail because of drug laws. He was in jail because of the violence, his response to his sister's death. He himself was carrying a gun, and so he goes after the guys who shot her in this mistaken identity case of a drive-by shooting. But once he gets out of jail... He's a member of that new Jim Crow society. Right. And so what does he do with it? And, and, and so this story is really about his response to his status. I'm a con. Once a con, always a con, he says at one point. How does he cope? He's early 20s. He's got a record. What, what does he do with his life? Mm-hmm. And, and there's definitely a, a little bit of sexual tension in this there story, is. there is, there <laughs> which, is, which, there which, is, which drives us to the twist, which I won't uh, give away here. But I want to tell you that I really like uh, the way in which you um, write in general, um, and the way in which you depict the African American oral tradition in these works, especially. And here's a line I just want to share with you and. Um, the listeners from your book from this same story and this is after the the twist in this short story happens and um, he's sitting there um, reflecting and he says and I hear Tisha my sis sis is still singing holding that note like in church when she did it till they got happy and I did too without showing it that's awesome that says so much right there <laughs> about the you know the power of the black church, the vernacular influence, the active of as Tony Morrison would say, rememory um yeah. and remembering. And the black church um is represented in a in 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 a, quite a few of these stories. Absolutely, absolutely. Again, you know, people like Jimmy Baldwin have talked in great depth about the power and 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 the glory of the black church and the way in which that is a touchstone for so much of who we are as a people um the pageantry the freedom and so for me it it is one of those touchstones that 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 invokes home right as a matter of that fact invokes home um as a matter of fact i wrote baldwin in the margins of by some passages in this book um one of them is is in um rendered invisible and uh, Johnny's telling his story, and he winds up in a church, and, and he says, I need healing. And he's standing at the back of the church looking at a small group of people up front, some women and a little boy, and he says, again, I need healing. When I read that, I, I saw Baldwin. You know, I, yeah. heard, I heard Baldwin right there. Let's talk about the last story, the, or the, one, the last one to talk about. Sure, Not the sure. last one in the collection, but um, we've talked about all the other ones. Tell us well, about that one. Well, the interesting thing about that story is that it's at least in part autobiographical. And I'll talk about the autobiographical piece uh, in the story um, in, in a bit. You, you have, two, you have two, two African-Americans, both of whom are successful. They're working at a college, PhDs. 
They're in a love relationship, which may not work. The woman's in a marriage. She's separated, and it's not quite working out, the marriage. She's in a relationship with this guy, and they're talking about what's going to become of their relationship. He wants her. He sees her as his black queen, the woman of his dreams, et cetera, et cetera. Yet he's also not sure, in part because of her and in part because of what he's reading you know, about his life and whatever. But, but stationed by their table is one of his students. And his student, uh, who happens um, to be an African student, is, is, a, um, is a survivor of the conflict. And so what, 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 what we're really looking at in this story is not only African Americans and our relative ease, um, but the, the, it, it, this, this is a story about the conflict in Rwanda. And um, his Rwandan student is a reminder of things that are more weighty, perhaps not as frivolous even as who you're going with next. And, and it's so interesting because I actually had a Rwandan student um, by the same name who, um, as in the case in the case of the story, comes to the professor in the story and says to him, I'm, I'm a survivor from the Rwandan conflict. And he tells the story about his father and his mother, and one of them being... Uh, of, of, of the one tribe and the other one being of the other tribe and um, how because one was Tutsi and one was Hutu, they had to get out of the country and they did not all make it alive. And one of my students told me that story, sat next to me and said to me exactly what the character says in, 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 in the story. And the response that I had was, quite frankly, where was I when this happened? What did I do? And so the story is not only about a love relationship that may or may not work by these two young, gifted, and black professionals who are working on the university level and doing great things for themselves and our people, but it's also about the response to Africa and the role of Africa in our consciousness. Mm -hmm. So now that we've talked in depth about your whole book, uh, Frank, tell us what you think the role of literature is in society. Well, you know, there's that old notion of the literature as the mirror and the lamp, and, and, and I would say that indeed that I, I subscribe to that notion that it's mirror and that it's lamp, and that in being mirror and in being lamp, that it will hopefully uh, light those places where there's darkness and, and, and obscurity and and help us see ourselves in ways that, and I would say a, a, a mirror of ma a mirror of magnification. That only not only do we see ourselves, but we see ourselves in a larger manner, in a manner where we can see the warts and see the blemishes and begin to pick at them. <laughs> that may be a horrible analogy, but 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 you get my drift. I do. And we've taken up a lot of your time today. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, it has been very enlightening. But before we go, can you tell us what you're working on now? Well, I've been approached by several people about um, doing a screen treatment for Rendered Invisible, so I'm going to be working on that. And in addition to that, I'm working on a scholarly paper about um, the image of the black as president in uh, American film, um, and in particular, I'm looking at a little-known film entitled The Man, where James Earl Jones stars as the first black president uh, of America, and it's a 1972 film, wow. so nobody's seen it, mm -hmm. and it's a fascinating film because if you, if you watch that film, 1972, The Man, starring James Earl Jones as the first black president, if you watch that film... And you put that film up against talking about literature and the arts as mirror, and you put that film up against hmm. the Obama administration, the response to the Obama administration, you go, oh my. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so, and so I'm working on a paper on that. And you know, there's a there was a um, another earlier treatment, not not in not in the film, but the uh, Saturday Night Live skit with um, Richard Pryor. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's hilarious, and the way in which he has to restrain himself um, during the the questions 
questioning, and then when they ask him about his mother, then you know he breaks loose. I, I, <laughs> there's yeah. actually a, there's actually a 1936 treatment with Sammy Davis Jr. Essentially playing the part of a pickaninny and try, titled Rufus Jones for president. Oh wow! Which also, yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. Well, stereotypical look, to say the least. I look forward to um, either viewing Rendered Invisible on on the big screen and reading your scholarly paper. Thank you so much, um, Frank, for talking to us today about your book Rendered Invisible: Stories of Blacks and Whites, Love and Death. Thank you. I appreciate it. We've been talking to Frank E. Dobson about his wonderful new book, Rendered Invisible, Stories of Blacks and Whites, Love and Death, published by Plainview Press in 2010. I hope this discussion has encouraged you to go out and read the book and to have conversations about it with your friends. Thank you.